I'm Forrest Brown, and you're listening to Stories for Earth. Welcome to Stories for Earth, a podcast about everything climate change and pop culture. Today, I'm excited to share my interview with Canadian scientist and science fiction author Nina Montianu. I got to talk to Nina a little while back about her latest novel, A Diary in the Age of Water, and it was such a pleasant experience. I really loved this novel, so it was so cool getting to hear about it from the author's perspective. If you want to read it for yourself, you can support Nina and the show by using the bookshop.org link in the show notes. A few things before we get started. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, and you can support further production of the show through Patreon or by sending us what you think the show is worth through Venmo. Visit storiesforearth.com support us for more info on how to do that. I'm also part of a Discord server called Rewilding Our Stories, along with Lovis Geyer from the Ecofictology YouTube channel and Mary Woodbury from dragonfly.eco. If you want to be part of that too, this is your formal invitation. It's free, it's a safe space to talk about ecofiction, cli-fi, writing, and more, and we're currently doing a book club for Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, which is just a fantastic book. If you want to join the Discord server, use the invitation link in the show notes. With that being said, here's my conversation with Nina Montianu about her latest novel, A Diary in the Age of Water. I hope you enjoy. Well, just to start off, um, just tell me a, bit, a little bit about yourself. How did you become a writer? Um, why do you think stories are important in the climate action movement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, start off uh, my process. You know, I wasn't much of a reader as a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, you know, my I had an older brother and sister, and they, they would read Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and all those kind of books. And mm-hmm. meantime... I was hiding in the back corner of Williams General Store, buying candy, candy and reading comics, you know, Superman, Supergirl, Magnus, Robot Fighter. Nice. So I was, uh, yeah, I just loved those. I ate them up. And, um, and he didn't kick me out either. He was a nice man. <laughs> so I wasn't <laughs> buying the comics either. I just kind of sequestered myself in a corner thinking I was, you know, hiding. You know how little mm-hmm. kids are like that. They think they're hiding yeah. and they're in, plain, they're in plain sight, of course, right? Sure. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, I mean, I, I was obviously enamored with a fantastic. And mm-hmm. um, when I did start reading, which I did do, uh, other than comics, I came across the SF classics, you know, okay. Huxley, Orwell, yeah. Wynn, Asimov. Mm-hmm. Ray, Ray Bradbury moved me. And mm-hmm. yeah. in fact, his Martian Chronicles made me cry. Really? I, yeah, I wanted to write science fiction like him. And I mean, that's, I wanted to write science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to move readers like he did with me too. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I also discovered the classics like Thomas yeah. Hardy. And uh, so like a beginning author, I imitated my favorites. So mm-hmm. just consider this, Ray Bradbury and Thomas Hardy. <laughs> 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 that was kind of weird stuff, right? Yeah. Genre confused, <laughs> if you will. Sure. Um, so it wasn't until I kind of found my unique voice, which basically blended these, you know, with my mm-hmm. passion for the environment. And um which I had as, as a kid. I mean, I was, I was uh, against littering. Littering was a pet peeve. In fact, yeah. it still is. So um, to answer your other questions, though, I, I think that stories 
help us define ourselves and mm-hmm. our role on this planet. We, we mm-hmm. live by the narratives we tell. Right. And climate fiction and eco-literature and solar punk mm-hmm. particularly provide us with important narratives that both entertain and, and because they entertain, they can also educate. Mm-hmm. So we're talking cautionary tales to constructive visualizations of a, of a potential future. We're talking right. optimism, right? Which mm-hmm. is an important aspect of that. Right. Cool. Yeah, it's funny. I um, I didn't really get into science fiction until I was much older. So, um, it's funny because now that I do this podcast, like most of what I talk about is science fiction. But it's science fiction. Yeah, but my dad had all those books, and I would always see them on his bookshelf when I was a kid, like uh, Asimov, neat. like the Foundation series and stuff like yes. that. So yeah. I still need to go I back robot. and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, read, read them all again. They're, they're cool. They're so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I kind of started with science fiction, and I, like I said, I dipped into the classics and, and got literarily confused. And then and I, <laughs> I came happens. out at the other end, yeah. um, impassioned through the environment, and I was really, I was writing, I was writing ecofiction and climate mm. fiction long before those terms came about, right? I mean, those are terms that we only use nowadays in the past five, ten years. Uh-huh. But I was, I was uh, writing those things long ago. That's yeah. great. Cool. Interesting. Your new novel, A Diary in the Age of Water, which I just finished reading, is the story of a young girl in the future who she discovers a diary from a Canadian woman who wrote about her experiences living... Um, through a time in Canada when water is becoming increasingly scarce. It's I, most of the story I think is set in about the 2040s. Um, so yep. what inspired you to write this book? Well, well, lots of things. Okay. Number <laughs> one, I'm a limno- I'm a limnologist. I'm a science, a water scientist. That's mm-hmm. a, a, lim- a limnologist is someone who studies fresh water. Okay. Uh, like, like an oceanographer, we study systems, not just, uh, ecology, gotcha. but, but everything else, okay. chemistry, physics, etc. And I've always, uh, I've got a whole other story about how I became interested in water. But suffice to say <laughs> that to water fast. Well, yeah, well, I started out being scared of water and I turned that into a fascination. And that mm. fascination be- became um, a calling and I, I took that on as a, mm. as a, car- as a career. Mm-hmm. And I'd always wanted to write about water, both nonfiction mm-hmm. and fiction. I write nonfiction as well quite a bit. Okay and more for the lay public to educate them about water. So Mm -hmm. um, I created a book called Water Is, and it was published by Pixel Press in 2016. And in fact, Margaret Atwood even liked it. Whoa, that's a big honor. (laughs) Yeah, that was very cool. Cool. Uh, She she talked about it in the New York Times, which was, I, I had no idea. I had no idea she was going to do that. That's anyway, it, so this this book was essentially my way of introducing water to the world uh, oh, okay. from a limnolo- you know from a limnologist's point of view, but mm-hmm. in lay language. So all the things that mean mean something uh, to people about water. So the yeah. subtitle is the mean the meaning of water, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, discusses essentially it's like a biography of water. Uh, from mm, okay. many different angles. So I, that was my first thing in 2016. And then I went from there, I was really into water. And yeah. then my, um, my uh, uh, Italian publisher in, in Rome, 
hmm. invited me to write a short story about water and politics in Canada. They're all pol political over there, right? Everything has to be political <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I've been long thinking about potential ironies in Canada's water-rich heritage. It's, you know, okay. Canada has a huge amount of water yeah. at any given time. Um, so the premise I wanted to explore was the irony of people in a water-rich nation experiencing water scarcity. Okay. Um, and if you think that's an oddity, we need to look around and to see mm -hmm. that it's actually happening in places. So yeah. this is uh, uh, someone living under a government-imposed water daily, uh, daily water quota of, let's say, five liters yeah. of water. Meantime, water bottling companies and utility companies are just doing whatever they want with it, right? Sure. So I, I named this story The Way of Water. Mm. And it was uh, essentially about a young woman. Her name is Hilda in near future Toronto, who's run out of water credits for the okay. public WTAP. In this world, everything is, water is public and you have to buy it, yeah. right? It's not, not unlike what happened in uh, Detroit where they shut off all the taps. So mm. houses no, no longer have potable water. Their taps have been cemented shut. And the only way to get water is through the, the public tap at great yeah. cost. So she's standing there two meters from water in a line of people waiting to use a tap. Mm. And she's, she's run out of credits. She's mm. dying of thirst. So that short story um, begged for more, begged for a novel, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next piece of inspiration came when I attended a talk by Maud Barlow. She's with the Council of Canadians on okay. her book. Uh, her book is called Boiling Point, mm -hmm. and it's about the water crisis in Canada. And we do have one <laughs> in Canada. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, we could talk well, about that for now. Interesting is the right word, uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, we were this the talk was in a church, gorgeous place, mm -hmm. and great acoustics. And I noticed up in the balcony a young mother and her little girl, little six-year-old girl, mm -hmm. up in the balcony. And I wondered, what kind of mother would bring her little girl to a political talk about water in Canada? <laughs> so, the direst character, Lina. Mm -hmm. And her mother, her mother, Una, were yeah. born. I mean, right there and then, I came up with these characters, right? Wow. And it went from there. Uh, Linda became the diarist in, in this book. Mm -hmm. And she writes about not just water shortage, but water-related phenomena like climate change, right. habitat destruction, hormone disruption, and the alarming mm -hmm. increased, increased fertil infertility in humans. Another yeah. uh, main theme that runs through the book. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that was um, something I wanted to ask about because I thought it was funny. Um, coincidentally, I just finished reading another book for um, an interview that I did actually a few days ago. Um, this was it was a book called Mankind by uh, C.C. Burke. Berkey, excuse okay. me. But um, yeah, yeah, it was all about that. It was um, it was kind of similar. I mean, the books are very very different, but his book is set in like a future Colorado when water is extremely scarce. Um, and yep. everyone is infertile because of hormone disruptors. So yeah. I was like, Oh, there it is yeah, again. So exactly. was this uh, something you were wanting to raise <laughs> awareness about with your book or how did that get in there? Oh, Oh, definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I had that in mind. It wasn't one of the main things, but it kind of sure. crept in funnily enough. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I do hope that, rising infertility is becomes a bit more on the radar because you know it's something that seems to embarrass us 
something, you know, right. it's like we we need to hide it under the rug, mm-hmm. you know, like like our, our misbehaving Uncle Zeke. <laughs> um, you know, it, if we don't talk about it, we can't understand the underlying reasons mm-hmm. for it, which, as you said, one of them is, is uh, endocrine right. disruption. And that's something that I study in water, in the water sciences. I mean, that's one of the places where it's it's mm. happening. Interesting. Yeah, in his book, it was um, microplastics, I think, that was causing the endocrine disruption. But uh, yeah, that was a uh, reading both of these books was really eye opening for me because um, I had recently seen articles um, saying that like male genitalia is shrinking because of you know like in a, because as a yeah. consequence of the climate yeah. crisis. But um, I wasn't actually aware of the fertility or yeah. I guess the. I don't know if you could call it a crisis yeah. yet, looming fertility it, crisis. It is yeah. actually. It's the, the, mm. the statistics are alarming. You need to okay. read this book, by the way, anybody who's listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, um, the character Daniel gives gives a really good, uh, he's he's my narrator in oh, a way. Daniel, yeah, a, yeah. Daniel, he gives a really good description of what's going on and, and mm-hmm. what's causing it because it's it's much more prevalent and oppressive, oppressive isn't the right word, but prevalent. In an mm-hmm. in a insidious way, then we may realize it's right. I mm. mean, car car exhaust, PCBs, right. yeah. um, various other toxic chemicals that seem to enter into our everyday living experience mm. uh, contain endocrine disrupting uh, elements. It's uh, yeah. something we need. If we're not aware of it, we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, and that's I don't know. It's like one of those things. Um, recently i guess like in the past year or so my wife and i have really been trying to make um much more of a concerted effort to only buy like organic produce if we can and just like definitely everything um and i had originally started wanting to do it because um of pesticide use and just non-organic produce and you know there's like um we're nearing like a colony collapse or hive collapse i think is what it's called um where we're just killing insane amounts All of the insects bees. through pesticides yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, bees bees um, particularly mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so that's what Pest- i was worried about when i first started doing it but yeah there's also the endocrine disruptor aspect of it too yeah i mean it, it, yeah mm-hmm. if you want a personal reason that's that's it but there are so many other in, <laughs> yeah. indirect reasons for for right. being careful about that as well yeah mm. so i wanted to talk about politics a little bit i know you're saying okay. in europe they have to make everything about politics but uh <laughs> we're going to talk about politics too i guess so um yeah sure. in your book politics well and like big business corporations are huge parts of the novel so like as you say um water's been privatized all the taps in people's houses have been cemented shut um and there's this company called canada core uh which is this huge i guess kind of like um it's almost like a government sort of uh, sized corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it is essentially in control of all of Canada's drinking water. Um, it's the one that instituted the pumps, like you were saying, where people have to buy water with yeah. credits. Um, so given that Canada is home to such a huge portion of the world's fresh water, which was another thing that I learned in this book, I knew Canada had a lot of water. I didn't realize just how much water it had. Um wondering what role do you see uh canada playing in the future as we're increasingly um running short on water 
Yeah, our role is is an interesting one. Um, but just to gain some perspective, mm-hmm. you know, you were mentioning potential water wars, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's happening right now, by the way, in, in the rest of the world. Yes. We kind of almost live in a bubble yeah, here. Yeah, we do. A bubble of... of uh, uh, a perception of plentifulness in terms of water, and mm-hmm. that's actually not true. Right. A lot of our water is polluted. It's uh, a lot of Canada's water that, you know, we talk about water being, uh, Canada being rich in water. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is, a lot of it is in the glaciers right. and in the large lakes. So just uh, not that much is is potable, and okay. we're using it, and we're actually messing it up just like everybody else. <laughs> Great. Um, you know, I mean, the rest of the the rest of the world is suffering from a lot of major water conflicts. Mm. And you you mentioned earlier about the Vice President of the United States yeah. predicting that wars will one day be fought over water. Yeah, I think she said and that she's, just a few she's, days ago. It's kind of wild. Yeah, she's 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 very right. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we talk. Just look at the Middle East and Asia. Yeah. There's tensions between Egypt and uh, I just saw a wonderful. Uh, well an ex, ex, <laughs> exemplary documentary mm. on it they, they, they want to uh, you know they, they're they're up in arms with nine upstream countries for control of water of the Nile right? oh, okay the, the the Sudanese and the Ethiopians are building dams mm. and Egypt oh, plans yeah. to pump right I think I saw this Egypt pl- yeah you saw the same one so Egypt is planning to pump you know water from lake nasser into the yeah. sahara so they can farm etc mm-hmm. and then we and then you have india pakistan and bangladesh yeah, and china yeah, yeah. all in conflict over major rivers mm-hmm. right the indus the ganges right. particularly the, the brahmaputra mm-hmm. so uh, i don't know if you know about india's river link plan and this uh, no. this is uh, something where they're essentially planning to suck all the well it's going to impact bangladesh big time yeah it's right next um, door so, yeah. So, meantime, Pakistan and Kashmir and India are fighting over more and more water. Mm. In the meantime, the Indus, the Indus is actually drying up. Okay. It's it's like the it's like the Colorado. It's no longer yeah. flowing into the ocean. <laughs> but 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 I I I want to I want to look closer to home, right? Yeah. Closer to what the <laughs> vice president was saying, sure. suggesting um, <clears throat> North America. Mm. So, um, you know, we. We border Canada and the States mm. border some significant water bodies, yeah. such as the Great Lakes, uh-huh. uh, various rivers like the Colorado River in the West. And what we've done is we formed joint commissions along with treaties to manage okay. these trans transboundary water bodies. Um, those joint commissions have been, you know, fraught with with disagreements <laughs> and and disputes and highly electrified politically. Yeah. With, political agendas on both sides mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So um, I just, I'm just reading right now a book by Eileen Delante Perks. It's called okay. A River Captured. And it explores the controversial history of the Columbia River Treaty. I don't know if you know much about that. Mm-hmm. They built some huge dams over there. So the Columbia flows from Canada through a, a huge watershed along the Rocky Mountain Trench. That's uh, down the Pacific the Northwest, States. right? Yeah, okay. in the Pacific gotcha. Northwest, exactly. Um, so the dams have already, you know, the, impacted ecosystems and indigenous mm-hmm. peoples all over the map yeah. and, and local cultures of the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. 
So it really didn't go well for Canada, <laughs> and particularly mm. some of the Indigenous peoples. They were just sort of wiped out yeah. in a sense, you know, like a like a semicolon, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, another example, the one that's in my book, um, if you remember it, is is from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It's the Nawapa Project, mm-hmm. North American Water Alliance something (laughs) plan (laughs) anyway yeah uh and it was put out by ralph parsons company and Mm -hmm. the army corps of engineers yeah Uh, and they their thing was to make the entire rocky mountain trench into a giant okay 800 kilometer long reservoir it's 500 mile long reservoir to hydrate the u.s of course (laughs) yeah and and that would (laughs) inundate a fifth of British Columbia's prime uh, habitat, a fifth of BC. Oh my gosh. That's and submerging real big towns, yeah. in, as well as a whole bunch of little towns. Right, right. And and of course indigenous communities, mm-hmm. right? And and literally destroy the fisheries. Yeah. Literally destroy fisheries, which are you know incredibly important mm-hmm. in, in BC. Right. Which is um, a resource high. Uh, anyway, the here's the thing though: mm-hmm. Congress seriously looking at it. And uh, it finally went down because of environmental pressures. Right. Pressures from I'm not Thank sure God. where. <laughs> well, uh, even Canada was sort of going, hmm, is this a good idea? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, my God. Um, if you look on the internet now, the plan is still out there. Yikes. It keeps resurfacing between, you know, corporate entrepreneurs, yeah, engineers, and, and primarily politicians yeah. who who see this plan as, as something that could save the, uh, the Midwest and the Southern parts of the States and California mm. and places that are, that are having problems with, uh, desertification, et cetera. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. That, um, I know that that ends up happening in the book, but it just makes me think of, um, I don't remember where I heard about this, but, um, Apparently, like in World War Two, the Nazis were looking at draining the Mediterranean to like turn it into more farmland. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it was something that I'd, <laughs> no, I no, which didn't. sounds absolutely oh, insane. But I was just like, that is just like a scale of messing with the yeah the Earth that huge, is huge. Scale. Can't even comprehend that. But yeah, it seems like something on that kind of magnitude, or like the uh, the Three Gorges Dam in China. Uh, Exactly. Which is Same thing. Just enormous, it's, massive it's dam. Humongous. Yeah. It is. We we as a you know as a species we do a, an awful lot of water diversion. I don't mm. know if you know this. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird a weird um, statistic or fact mm-hmm. that um, so many we we've, we've done so much and we've diverted and and stored so much water, yeah. primarily primarily in the northern hemisphere. Mm. So much so that we've actually affected the rotation of the earth by, by some, some minuscule thing, but, but But still (laughs) that has, but yeah, because of the, the excess weight of water being held in the Northern hemisphere versus the Southern hemisphere, Mm. um, all that water that's, you know, sitting there Mm -hmm. has literally changed, changed the balance. That's when you think of it that way on a global scale, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's one word for it. <laughs> scary. Oh, yeah. Scary it's, also comes to yeah, mind. <laughs> scary. Scary is another word. Yeah, yeah this is true. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so speaking of entrepreneurs and politicians, um, 
big business. Um, obviously, like I was saying, is a huge theme in this book. Um, and I mean, we kind of see this in other things. Like there's a, a bigger question that kind of gets at this too. But the whole time I was reading this, I was really wondering if there is ever a point when big business or industry and sustainability are actually compatible. Um, you know, there's, I think you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, like literary um, movements and uh, cultural movements like solar punk kind of imagine a future where it's more like DIY and uh, emphasizes yeah. more like small business and big yeah. corporations and stuff. But, um, and you know, there's a massive conversation about this right now. Like Naomi Klein has a whole book yep. about this and oh, yeah, yes. which is, I yes. started to read it. Yeah. I haven't finished it quite yet, but I will yeah, get around to it. But I mean, yeah. Can we it's, have capitalism uh, and a planet that we can live on? <laughs> I guess. Now there's the question, yeah. right? Because I think that's polarized people quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I, I mean, I would say, uh, and even I go back and forth a bit sometimes sure. in thinking. It kind of depends on how you see things. So I'm thinking mostly economists mm -hmm. would say definitely yes. Yeah. And th this is possible. All we need to do is be conservationist mm -hmm. in our approach right. to doing business. But, of course, the problem is what does that mean? And, and how do you do that? Because the very basis of capitalism is exploitation. Right, yeah. It's not conservation. Yeah. So the driving force behind capitalism is actually fear mm. and, un and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. it's a main, its main process is exploitation. Right. From, so from, a, from a, an ecologist's perspective, this actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. now, it makes sense for a community during its early succession and growth stage. So when a community first settles, mm -hmm. let's say moss on a rock or something, right. um, there's a certain process that occurs. It's, it's called succession. Mm -hmm. So one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Okay. Um, so when it first colonizes, so we call this approach uh, R-selected R for rate. Okay. So it has a certain, um, a certain approach, a certain way of doing things, mm -hmm. a certain way of reproducing, a certain way of of uh, acting, of getting its food, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's all based on being profligate and growing fast mm. and growing everywhere, yeah. right? Colonizing. Colonize everywhere like a bacteria yeah. or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or like seeds, right? Mm. Uh, all, all annual plants are, are selected because that's how they, they promote themselves. Okay, yeah. Right. So here's the thing, though. Once we reach a climax community, and our carrying capacity, mm. which means, you know, you don't want to go beyond right, that because right. then you're going beyond what can, can carry you. This is where we are now. Mm -hmm. And the R-selected approach no longer works. Mm. And so we've got an economic model based on that approach. On the R-selected approach. We need one that matches the new paradigm, okay. not one based on continued growth, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where a climax global economy I don't know if you've heard that term, no. what, uh, comes into play. It's based on cooperation, okay. not competition. What a concept. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, um, Elizabeth uh, Sartouris, mm. um, she's a, an ecologist visionary, mm -hmm. uh, calls this ecological economy. She, she gets okay. a name for it. She calls it ecosophy. Okay. So it br brings philosophy of ecosystem into economics. Gotcha. 
Um, Daniel Christen Wall also in his book, Designing Regenerative Cultures, mm -hmm. he talks about changing our evolutionary narrative from one based on fear, mm. defined by a perception of scarcity, right. competition and separation mm -hmm. to one based on love, defined by perception of abundance yeah. and a sense of belonging collaboration and inclusion see the difference yeah. now one difference. might seem naive. one might seem naive but only if you you look at it on the surface mm. if you look at it deeply you can see that it makes sense right. and this is something that the indigenous peoples have always known mm -hmm. and always practiced um i don't know if you know the author robin wall kimmerer i do yeah um she's she wrote braiding sweetgrass mm -hmm. she also wrote a book book called gathering moss yep a uh, beautiful metaphoric tale of of how to live in fact okay uh, looking at moss as our teacher mm. um i actually listened to a podcast episode her talking about moss and it was just mind-blowing isn't it yeah oh and what she brings in she's mm -hmm. an amazing speaker she is but yeah. she talks about a uh she talks about a gift economy okay yeah, so yeah. it's a it's an, e an economy of abundance and the basis lies in recognizing the value of kindness, sharing, and gratitude. Right. It's sort of like that barter approach, right? Mm -hmm. I give, you take, you give back. The uh, reciprocity involved there, right? right? Um, so this is what she says. This is a quote. Climate change is a product of this extractive economy, the one, she, one we're in right mm -hmm. now. And it's forcing, us, it's forcing us to confront the inevitable outcome of our consumptive lifestyle. Genuine scarcity for which the market has no remedy. So that's what will happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, indigenous story traditions are full of these cautionary teachings. When the gift is dishonored, the outcome is always material as well as spiritual. Disrespect the water and the springs run dry. Waste the corn and the garden grows barren. Mm -hmm. Regenerative economy, economies which cherish and reciprocate the gift are the only path forward. I totally agree with her. Mm. To replenish the possibility of mutual flourishing for birds and berries and people, we need an economy that shares the gifts of the earth, following the lead of our oldest teachers, the plants. She's talking about the mosses again there. Sure. I mean, what a concept. Yeah. So seeing seeing the glass full as opposed half full <laughs> as opposed to half empty, mm -hmm. right? Is in a way really what she's talking about. That's so great. And uh, and I think a lot of people are going that way. I think we're that that discussion is happening. Yeah, I think so too. So, um, I'd heard that mm -hmm. term "gift economy" before. I'm totally drawing a blank on the author who wrote about it, but there's another podcast that I listen to sometimes called the Green Dreamer Podcast. Uh, that's hosted okay. by Kamea Shane, I think is her name. But yeah, she interviewed an author who lives in Asheville, North Carolina. And he wrote this whole book about the gift economy and she had him on there uh, oh. talking about it. So I thought that was just so interesting because I'd never Perfect. come across that concept before. But yeah, it is like you were saying, just based on this idea of um, abundance instead of scarcity and cooperation instead of competition. And I just yeah. that totally just flips everything that we do right now on its head. So, it, yeah, it is. And it's 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 beautiful. It is. Yeah. She gives some excellent ex. She gives excellent examples. And uh, I mean, we could go into that forever. But um, <laughs> sure. 
suffice to know, you know, we need to be reading this. We mm. need to be discussing this. Yeah, it's it's out there. It's being written about, and I'm glad that I was able to share it with you today. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a conversation that needs to continue to happen for sure. Yeah, I was just talking with somebody else. Um, Braiding sweetgrass has been on my to read list for a really long time. But so have like a million other books and I just haven't gotten it to it yet. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah, it's the this problem. So, um, but yeah, we were just talking about um, doing a book club over braiding sweet, gla- sweet grass um, potentially. So I really hope that that happens. Um, I think that'd be super cool. Um, it would be yeah. very cool. Yeah, I would love very to do cool. that. And yeah, there's this, um, I feel like anytime we have this discussion about like can capitalism uh I guess stick around if we're going to, you know, keep the earth. Um, I feel like a lot of people who are pro capitalism will say, well, if you just like left, um, people to their own devices, like nat- capitalism is just a system that would naturally arise or whatever. And they always point to nature as like proof of that. And they'll be like in nature, like different species compete for resources, but, the more that, I mean, I'm certainly not a biologist or a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but like, I feel like the more that I do learn about science, the more I come across people talking about, um, the different kinds of relationships that different species have. It's not always just competition. And you talk about that a lot in your book, which I thought was so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's, this is the problem in our philosophy. We, you know, in anyone's philosophy and beliefs, Mm -hmm. you, you can pick and choose nature offers so many examples of just about everything. And we're only by looking, you can find, and we haven't been looking. This is the whole problem is Mm -hmm. up to, you know, quite recently, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, examples of altru altruism were not looked for. And, and therefore we're not found, but, but they're there. Examples of, of uh, commensalism, huge numbers of right. yeah. uh, positive symbiosis mm-hmm. are, are out there. Um, communities, in, interspecies uh, helping each other mm-hmm. um, are, are, I mean, nature's full of it. Yeah. It's just a question of finding it and seeing it. Yeah. And, and this is, this is the, again, it comes back to the story, comes back to the narrative that, that we need to be changing that narrative. Mm. And that's why this podcast and others like it are so important mm. because it puts it on the map. It, we start by discussing right. it. That's the first step. Yeah, totally. And then we start to think it and then, then things change with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, um, it makes me think of, I'm, I don't remember the exact quote. I'm very loosely paraphrasing here, but I think it was Richard Dawkins once said that, um, if like there was a god my friend your friend richard dawkins (laughs) oh my god do you have a lot of strong opinions on him i don't know too much about him so yeah i do Uh, i just i just find everything everything he says illogical okay it's terrible yeah well i I totally get that yeah but i there was some quote about him (laughs) so when i was growing up um i was raised in the church and i went to a very small like private christian school so one of the classes that I had to take growing up was an apologetics class. Um, so for everyone who doesn't know, it's not a class on how to apologize. It's supposed to be a class on um, how you defend the faith with reason. So like a lot of our time was spent looking cool. at videos of, you know, atheists debating, I guess, with Christians. And yeah, mm-hmm. uh, 
Yeah. Apologetics is a whole other thing that is uh, interesting to talk about. But sure uh, is. yeah, um, I, I remember there was, um, it might have been a debate or like a speech that Richard Dawkins gave where he said something like, um, if like God, if there was like a loving God who used evolution to create, then he wouldn't want to believe in that God or something to that effect because evolution is so violent and cruel and um, he wouldn't uh. believe that was a loving God who used, who chose to use that system to create life, I guess. So, but I mean, yeah. you know, my, my response to that uh-huh. is, is the reality, reality okay. and the world in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. So period, period, uh-huh. because, um, I see a different world mm-hmm. than that. Yeah. A very, very different world. Yeah. And you know, if you want to, you choose to see the world like that, then that's, that's your choice. But believe me, <laughs> yeah, that's not the only way the world exists. Yeah. I'm starting to so learn that more and yeah. more, which is really cool because I mean, that was just what I always taught growing up was, you know, like species like just kill each other over resources and stuff but yeah as you say like no they actually help each other out and there is a lot of altruism in nature so sure mm-hmm. the, sure there is a lot of violence yeah there's there also a lot yeah. of the opposite mm-hmm. there's a lot of of cherishing of love of playfulness mm-hmm. I mean, we're just finding out yeah. you know how playful animals <laughs> they are. really are yeah uh, which i don't know why how, that's so surprising yeah. but it seems to be for some reason yeah 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 and again, I, I, it comes down to what we looked for mm-hmm. and what we didn't look for. It yeah. really comes down to that more than anything. Mm. I think that's really cool. I love like hearing about that stuff. I th- just think it's awesome. So, um, switching gears <laughs> a little, I could talk about it for so long, but, um, okay. <laughs> switching, yeah. switching Same. gears just a little bit. Um, a lot of the diary entries, um, cause I think in the book, Lena, the, the writer of the the diary, she was born in 2016 or was it right before then? I'm forgetting now. Uh, just before that. Yeah. Because I know that she talks a lot about like the Trump administration, like speaking of it in the past, like a long time in the past, but, um, yeah, Yeah. she makes frequent, frequent reference to, uh, the post truth era, um, which I mean, like has been coming. I, I feel like for a long time, I'm like George Orwell wrote about it at least like as recently as 1984. But I, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the wheels were already in motion before then as well. But, um, it, I guess people, as soon as, um, you know, Trump was elected and, uh, there was that one day on the news when Kellyanne Conway said that something was an alternative oh. fact, which <laughs> immediately just was like, <laughs> So triggering to everybody who's probably ever read 1984 and was like, oh my gosh, it's happening. <laughs> um, oh, I know. Yeah, so I couldn't believe it when I, I heard know. That. It was just, and I feel like she said that just because I just feel like there wasn't a lot of thought that went behind a statement like that, but it carried a lot of weight. And regardless of whether she meant that or not, like sure did. it really like. <laughs> Uh, kind of encapsulated a lot of what we we're going through then and still are going through. It feels like it's actually yeah. getting worse now. Um, but yeah, so this is a huge question because now that we're really, we can't delay action on climate change any longer. Like, I mean, it's already, we're already acting too late to stop a lot of the worst effects, but um, we really can't put it off any longer now. But now we have this problem of like post-truth and you know, like in the United States, like the Republican party is just 
completely like out of touch with reality and it's not even that they just like have they it, that they like don't really believe the science it's like much more cynical than that it's they're just rejecting reality and replacing it with their own reality because they like it yeah better, almost yeah and i feel like i'm getting kind yeah. of similar vibes from the conservative party in canada at times um definitely with, like the recent definitely. news that came out I'm, i forgot who was it doug ford who was saying that um you know, that they weren't going to like recognize that climate <laughs> uh, change was real or something like that. Um, yeah. Yep, so yeah. Anyway. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just am wondering like, how do we push for climate action? How do we actually make progress on this kind of thing when we do seem to be dealing with people who are, literally aren't in the same reality as we are? It's just kind of maddening trying to work out this problem. Yeah. I, I, What's your answer? I have no I I have no I have no answer for that. Yeah. I don't know if <laughs> oh, anyone sorry, does. Matt, but but no, seriously seriously though, if you look at it, you know, how do you how do you convince someone about an evidence-based truth when they're living a faith-based or mm, agenda-based? That's a good way truth, to put right? it. They're yeah. totally different. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a scientist for a lot of my life and I just, you know, I find the whole thing incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, here's some advice that I did hear <laughs> okay. from uh, a really good, a really good Ted talk given by a, a neat lady. I can't remember her okay. name, unfortunately. And she said that, you know, you, those two don't, can't mix, right? right. They really can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you appeal to a person's compassion. Mm appeal to their kindness, their links to family and friends. In other words, find some common ground through their humanity yeah. in whatever phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, say it's a lo- let's say it's a local manifestation of climate change, right. like, you know, something going on. Then work from there. So keep it local and practical yeah. and non-threatening. In other words, take the science out, mm-hmm. take, the belief, take the belief out, and appeal on human grounds, humane grounds. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking. I'm thinking that you can't convince someone to change their belief, right? Yeah, you because know, that's what it is, right? Yeah. But you might be able to persuade them to accept an aspect of something mm-hmm. if it doesn't threaten, if it doesn't threaten their belief, right? I, right. I, that's that. That's the only thing <laughs> I can think of because it's it's a tough one. It you is. Know? Yeah. You're, you're totally in different camps, mm-hmm. right? Because you think because you think differently mm-hmm. and, and it's, it is a question of thinking, but it's also a question of believing. Right. Yeah. That, um, reminds me a lot. I actually took a, um, on Coursera, you know, it's like the website where you can take classes from, you know, like different universities and stuff. It extremely discounted or sometimes mm. free. Um, and yep. you get like a digital certificate or something that you took the class. So I took one, um, cool. last year. Yeah. It's a really cool platform. A lot of it is, you know, like how to code and stuff like that, which is great if you, um, don't want to shill out like a hundred thousand dollars to go to a free or private university, <laughs> uh, which yeah, right. uh, speaking from experience would not advise that. Um, but yeah, I took a class on there from the Yale center on climate change communication. Um, and it was, uh, public health and climate change communication, which was super interesting because I okay. actually started taking it before the COVID-19 pandemic started. 
Um, oh, and, good for yeah, you. and they were all talking about, uh, you know, like how unprepared we are for a pandemic and stuff. And then, you know, lo and behold, one hits and then boom. Yeah. So, um, isn't that funny? Yeah. But that is something that not they so talked about. Yeah. Not, not so funny, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what the word would be. Uh, coincidental, ironic, maybe. I- yeah. Ironic, ironic, um, yeah, definitely ironic. Yeah, but that is something that they talked about was um, just like appealing to people's humanity. And it's funny how strange language is and how inadequate it is in a lot of times for talking about things like this because you can... That's a very good point. Yeah, because, I mean, I remember one thing that they mentioned was, um, you know, with... um, if you are like talking to somebody who's, I guess, like a climate change denier, or if they are more like conservative in their beliefs or their political opinions or whatever, um, for some reason the word conservation really resonates strongly with them. Um, whereas we would say like, you know, like regulation and stuff like that, and you know, yeah. So it's yeah. just funny yeah. because yeah, you. Yeah. That's that's very smart. That's mm. that's really smart for us. That it's it comes down into, and you see how that blends in with the the belief, right? Mm-hmm. Because based on your belief, you're going to use languages in a certain way, yeah. and your terms are going to vary. Mm-hmm. So understanding that is also part of bridging that yeah. gap, because that's what totally. it is—a big gap between between ways of speaking, doing, and thinking, mm-hmm. and somehow finding that middle ground where you're not misunderstanding each other. Right. And, and hopefully you make some little baby steps from that. <laughs> yeah, but, totally. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Easier said than done. It is like, it's so hard to do I it. Think yeah. So. Um, it is. and I, I lived in, um, Nashville, Tennessee for a long time and I'm originally from Georgia, but I moved back here after the pandemic started. But, um, so now that I'm back here, like all my family lives here, um, I see my yeah. grandparents and extended family a whole lot more and they're all very conservative. Um, so, but it's just funny because you'll be driving down the street and, you know, here in the Metro Atlanta area, we have a huge problem with, um, urban sprawl, um, like many cities right. do. So, yep. um, yep. yeah, there's just, um, my grandparents originally, you know, like, um, on my mother's side, they you know, moved way out in the country because they didn't like living so close to the city. They both are from the country, um, like in South Georgia and Alabama. So they really don't like city life and they were wanting to get out to, you know, like where it's uh, a lot quieter and not as developed. So, but now that, you know, sprawl is catching up, they're, you know, clear cutting tracks of land and putting up, you know, like a grocery store, something dumb like that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but just something we don't need. We're like, there's one like 10 minutes down the street yeah, in the other direction. Yeah. Why do you need another uh, one? I know. But, uh, well, another mall. Yeah. Another mall. Yeah. Or like a Walmart. Uh, yeah. Oh, but dear. You'll be going yeah. past it. And like my grandfather will always be like, they're just ruining everything. Like, it's so sad that they're cutting down all the trees. And I'll just be like, did you really just say that? Like, <laughs> um, because that yeah. sounds like something I would say. Um, and we're probably like, I mean, I don't talk to my grandparents about politics, but we're probably like as far on the polar opposite side of things politically <laughs> as we could be. So, yeah. Yeah. But see, that's a good example mm-hmm. of you're both lamenting, but probably your values of that right, are different, yeah. but you're still, you're lamenting it for, for a reason. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in there, there you come together, right. you can overlap, but the reasons are di- different. Yeah, and totally. that's, I think that's, that's the challenge is to find, mm-hmm. to, uh, to find and respect those other reasons, mm-hmm. those different reasons. Yeah. 
come to a you know, whatever. Yeah. It's just something. <laughs> a common conclusion. Yeah, we'll have to figure yeah. it out sooner or later, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess talking about like the kind of um, tendency to control and how you were talking about the, um, the dams that they're building and how that displaces so many indigenous and First Nations peoples. Um, I wanted to kind of talk about colonialism and how it's tied to the climate crisis. I recently finished reading this book called The Great Derangement by um, Amitav Ghosh, yes. who's an Indian writer. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, a I huge know. aspect of that book. Oh. I mean, one part of it is, you know, how do we write stories about climate change? But then another huge aspect yes. of it is um, like imperialism and colonialism and how that has essentially caused climate change. Um, but I mean, we still see this in your novel, like in the 2040s, like you were saying they've built this reservoir and they've just dammed up huge, huge swaths of British Columbia and just turned it into water to sell to the Americans basically because we've run out of water down here. Um, but I mean, things like this are happening still today. I mean, we have like American oil companies in South America that, you know, use colonialist practices to exploit, um, countries there for their oil and, um, now like things like lithium mines and stuff too, now that we're building more batteries. But, Mm. um, I was really thinking of what's happening right now in Minnesota with the line three pipeline that, um, is currently under construction. So, um, yeah, this was crazy when I started reading about this. Um, there's a climate journalist that I read named Emily Atkin and she has this, uh, newsletter that I subscribe to, uh, called heated. But yeah, she was talking about how Enbridge, which is a Canadian energy company, they basically like paid off the local police departments there in Minnesota to kind of, I don't know if private Uh, army is like uh, the right word, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's mercenaries. Yeah, basically. Yeah. They're kind of like a private, you know, security company, Private, yeah. even though they're supposed to be protecting the people who live there in that community. But, um, but a huge part of this is that uh, the line three pipeline is going through traditional um, indigenous lands and they're actually even tunneling underneath the Mississippi river to build this in one part. So, and you were mentioning earlier about how indigenous people have known, um, you know, like how to live more sustainably for so for such a long time. But um, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about the importance of protecting indigenous rights in the climate movement. Yeah. Uh, well, as you know, as I mentioned, and you mentioned um, local and traditional ecological knowledge, that's, I think there, there's an acronym. Mm. L-T-E-K. Yeah. Uh, it, it literally does lie at the heart of preserving the planet's mm. health and, and balancing the climate. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what I'm seeing is, which is heartening, very heartening, is, is that the indigenous people around the world are, are regaining control yeah. of their you know, territorial environments They're in, to invigorate their food security and governance mm-hmm. and, and you know, social relations. Um, I have a quote here by Stephen Nitov, the Dene First Nation. Okay. He says, because of their attachment to and dependence on the land, indigenous peoples have been establishing their own protected areas for millennia. Mm. And this is, you know, I mean, this, this is precedence. I mean, this is history. Right. They've been doing this for ages and ages. And we're, we're just catching up. Yeah. Um, 
Luckily, though, we are at a more, perhaps more so on a grassroots level, but in some cases on a government level. Mm. Um, an example of this is the uh, is the IPCAs. Okay, you know about them, the Indigenous uh, Fed Conservation Movements. Uh, I think it stands for Indigenous Protected Con- and Conserved Areas. Uh, I don't know. And these are areas that are Indigenous led. Okay, right. So they're the primary role in protecting and conserving mm-hmm. ecosystems through indigenous laws okay yeah and and their knowledge system mm-hmm. and it's linked to the united nations De- declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples mm. it's un- undrip uh, specifically their articles 29 and 32 mm-hmm. I, I don't i won't read them all out but they're <laughs> they're awesome cool the idea though is that the indigenous govern themselves and their territories to conserve and protect them and they actually have the right to do so mm. um so in British Columbia and Canada, right. this is happening quite a bit. Okay, There's cool. a lot of examples uh, with the uh, Plaquit and the Haida. Mm. Um, here's here's an example, mm. um, the which one that I've been following for a bit, mm-hmm. and it's the Hiltzuk Nation in the Great Bear Sea. Okay, they actually enacted. So they've been you know enacting an Indigenous law. They've enacted on, on what they call <clears throat> an Oceans Act mm. to protect what they call their ocean's relatives, which is wonderful. Oh, wow. way of saying I love it. that. Per- yeah. Particularly the Pacific herring. This is a keystone species mm, that they rely okay. on and every lot of people rely yeah. on. So the Heltzik he- he- uh, herring relationship has thrived over millennia yeah. through a system of traditional ecological knowledge, something called guillas, mm-hmm. which is, which enc- encompasses all that and, and the oral teachings mm. uh, and primarily a sustainable harvesting practice, hmm. which I won't go into because it involves the, the adults versus the row, et cetera, et cetera, what's, yeah. you know, what's uh, harvested, et cetera. So under the current legislation overseen by DFO, commercial fisheries are pretty much destroying that herring mm-hmm. fishery through unsustainable practices. They're not doing it the same way. Yeah. So even though Hotsik's uh, stewardship and governance in this area was recently recognized by Canada, by the provincial and the federal government, mm. D- DFO continued to operate separately yeah. with set- settler law. So they were Gosh. opening the herring seine fishery mm. in violation of the Hotsik constitutional rights. Yeah. Um, so there's this giant conflict happening since 2015, mm. hugely seems like the latest I heard is that they finally collaborated. They're collaborating. That's what they have to do. Right. And it comes down to two parties meeting and, and uh, talking to each other mm. and, you know, we're working it out. So it's, it's an, it's an ongoing conversation mm. and I, and I think it's moving forward yeah. with, with much more recognition. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember um, seeing recently, um, I, th- I believe it was in Quebec. There was, um, a group of indigenous people who had um, won a court case to establish rights for a river there in Quebec. I think I saw that recently. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Yeah, I do. Yeah. I just thought that was so great. And uh, I was talking to, oh gosh, when was it? It was back a few months ago, but me and my friend uh, Lovis Geyer from Scotland, we did an episode together on um, the overstory by Richard Powers. And um, I love that. Yeah. It's a good one. It's really good. But, um, yeah, we were talking about um, rights for nature in that episode, because um, one of the um, one of the character narratives in that book uh, talks about that a lot. 
Um, but yeah, I think that originally started in New Zealand with the Maori people and it's now kind of spreading around the world, but it is, it is, which is wonderful to see. Yeah. And yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. And I think it was also the UN put out a report. It might've been, I might be getting it confused with someone else, but, but yeah, like land managed by indigenous peoples, like it actually encourages biodiversity. Yeah, it definitely does. Definitely. Yeah, which is just yeah. so cool. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that's a movement that will continue to gain traction, um, it, you know, moving it, forward. It seems like yeah, it is. It, yeah. Picking up steam. It has to, uh-huh. it has to for us. <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> I'm agree. We're depending on it mm-hmm. <laughs> for my, for my children and my children's children, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, honestly. Totally. Yeah. Um, going back a little bit to what we were talking about, <laughs> the post-truth era, which is such a fun thing to talk about. Um, oh, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's just maddening. But um, <laughs> one one of the things that has made this even worse recently is just the rise of uh, disinformation and misinformation. And, I mean... And, and conspiracy yes. theories. I guess that's what you mean, well, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's tied All into this it, conspiracy yeah. theory yeah, stuff. Yeah, so that was a huge part of your book, especially your character you mentioned earlier, Daniel. Uh, and he was such an interesting character, but yeah, (laughs) there's this like, um, was it like a social media platform? I was trying to figure out if it was something like a Reddit or Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's actually sort of more than that, but that's good enough way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of a a platform independent of the internet itself. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So on internet. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was called Oracle and he was always on that, just finding stuff and, Uh, Lena, the, the narrator of the diary is always saying that she was like afraid to go on Oracle because it was just, you know, like yeah. a rat's nest of conspiracy yeah. theories and misinformation <laughs> stuff, which but, it was. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Daniel cause I thought he was such a cool character and, you know, talk about yeah. what inspired him. Yeah. He's, he's definitely an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a, he's a kind of a, uh, twisted hipster version of the Oracle okay. of an Oracle. He's young, Mm -hmm. he's wise, uh, but naive too, all at the same time, right? So um, I kind of brought him in as a trickster archetype, Mm. uh, a kind of a foil to Lynn. Yeah. Yeah, We won't, we won't spoil the, give spoilers to the book, but there's some interesting things that happen Mm -hmm. there, right? So um, he's her technician and workmate and he he ends up uh, being her link to the world of gossip and dark truths. Uh, repressed <laughs> by the corporations via the traditional internet. Mm-hmm. And he, so he finds these gems in the quagmire of the net yeah. to share with her over coffee. So he's really very bright and astute technology uh, technologist, mm-hmm. but he's also naive in some way. For instance, he's a researcher who dabbles in conspiracy theory. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, I love that. He's all, ab- he's, yeah, he's all about health, but he's a smoker. He's a chain smoker. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's he's a man of contradictions, mm-hmm. and even though he's Lena's coffee companion and amuses her, he's also unsettling her. Right? right? Yeah. Um, so in true trickster fashion, he finds out her secret, mm. and and of course, we know that he pays for it. Right? Yeah. His character <laughs> uh, allows me to explore the best and worst in that diarist character. Mm. So he. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> a lot of fun to write. Yeah, <laughs> just to imagine this guy. 
I guess like the dark web is what Oracle is making me think of. It's yeah, it seems maybe it, it, a little bit is. more like pretty that. much. Yeah, yeah, it is more like that. Yeah, but yep. I feel like yep. probably everybody has known somebody like Daniel <laughs> at some point. Probably, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, or definitely. At least some people probably. You know, have, uh, but, yeah. so he's you can really like him, but he can be really annoying yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that was. I mean, I feel like that was the thing that Lena said a lot too. Is that. I mean, he was kind of like her lifeline to knowing like information about what's going yeah. on outside, but yeah. also he really got on her nerves and yeah. totally understand. But you why. know, yeah. But he he also <laughs> amused her. He was also company for yeah. her and all these things. So there was this you know push pull thing going mm-hmm. on between them. Yeah. So this was another thing that Daniel brought up, though it was um you know earlier I asked you if it was possible to live sustainably and also live in a capitalist system, but Daniel asked maybe even like a deeper question that kind of gets a little bit more at the root of that question, I thought, which was, can you, can you save the earth and save humanity too? Um, so this was like kind of a question that yeah. really tore Lena yeah. apart. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to hear what you think is the answer to that question. <laughs> I'm asking you all the really big questions this evening. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What's the meaning yeah. of life, Nina? <laughs> Why is the sky blue? Right. I'd rather answer that one. Um, that one you actually can answer. So. <laughs> yeah. So you know, are are humans the root problem? I guess is what mm-hmm. you're saying. Um, right. And you know, right off the bat, I would say, of course we are. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's it's far too simple and easy an answer too. It's like a cop out. It's the easy way out. Mm-hmm. And to me, it isn't so much that we're human that's created climate crisis, among other things. It's that um, most of us live and subscribe to a worldview and a belief system that came from a place of great uncertainty. Mm. I talked about that earlier. Um, With a perception of scarcity and, and an existential model based on fear and separation. You know, ancient peoples and most indigenous people today Mm -hmm. don't hold themselves separate from the land. Right. You know, it's all about the land. Mm-hmm. They, they already live in ecological civilizations. Right. Um, and in fact, an ecological civilization is, is uh, both a new and an ancient idea. Uh, Buddhists, the Taoists, mm-hmm. and other traditions base their spiritual wisdom on the deep interconnections of things. Mm-hmm. Right. So back to Robin Wall Kimmerer, she said that, yeah. In uh, indigenous ways of knowing, it's is to understand that each living thing is a particular has a particular role to play. Mm. This is gorgeous what she says. Yeah. Every being is endowed with certain gifts, its own intelligence, spirit, and story. Mm. Um, and and the key is to find that gift within us and learn to use it well. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're starting to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly because, you know, as we discussed, we are listening to the traditional ecological knowledge mm-hmm. of the indigenous peoples. We are listening to them. We're, you know, finally taking it seriously and doing some reconciling. And we've got a long ways to go, I know. But yeah. part of that is is in, in understanding and respecting that as a way, a different way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and similarly, I do believe that human nature is basically empathic. Yeah. and cooperative not selfish and competitive i think mm-hmm. i think i think we're born the former and we're taught to be the latter okay interesting 
Yeah, that that's what needs to change. Mm. How we are taught. Mm. The narr- the net comes back to the narrative. Yeah. What what narrative we we what stories we tell about ourselves. That's great. I love that. Yeah, it um it makes me think a lot of um this book I, you've probably read it before or at least heard of it Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Um yes. yeah, it makes me think a lot of that cuz you know one of the big themes in that book was um just about um like the the controlling mythology that we have in our yes. society and like yeah it was like if you know if you went to ancient rome or something and asked somebody like if like about like a myth of zeus or something like that they would give you a funny look and they'd be like that's not a myth like <laughs> he's a right, he's a god right um, yeah yeah but, yeah but he was like <laughs> but like at the same time if somebody came up to you and you know said something like, oh, tell me about the myth of like limitless growth or something like that. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Like that's, yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. system that we operate in. So I, yeah, I think you're right. Like a lot of that is learning to change the narrative that we kind of have yeah. been taught from birth, at least in our culture, uh, which is like a Western culture, but yeah. You know, the, the stories that we write are so important and that's why mm. I'm also heartened, heartened by, uh, the fiction that I see that's yeah, out there right now. Yeah, a lot now. of it's really groundbreaking. You no, know, uh, it is climate fiction. Eco fiction mm-hmm. is no is not really any longer even right now a brand in itself. It's it's lit. It's literally taking. Uh, how shall how shall I say it? It's it's uh, like an amoeba. It's it's going into <laughs> all other types of of literature. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's part of literary fiction mm-hmm. it's part of science fiction it's part of any kind of fiction uh heaven forbid maybe it'll even be part of romance yeah. fiction <laughs> but the point is it's infusing this this idea mm. of of the environment the importance of environment and climate change and all that mm-hmm. has become an underlying theme that's literally going into every form of storytelling yeah and that when that starts to happen when uh, the taxi driver that, that in New York t- tells me about climate change, then I know <laughs> I know that it's part of us now, mm. and that we are, we have become a movement ourselves, and we're moving forward. That's great. And that's very heartening. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think it was Margaret Atwood actually who said that it's not climate change; it's everything change. Um, yes. So, yeah. And then yeah. I want to say Barbara Kingsolver was. Uh, saying that, you know, at a certain point, it may have been Margaret Atwood. Sorry if I misattribute this quote, but she was saying like at a certain point, like it is going to just be like you will be writing fantasy essentially if you aren't including uh, climate change in what you're writing because it is reality and it's becoming um, such a more noticeable part of our everyday experience, I guess, Um, at least here. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It could have been either lady, but I'm suspecting it was Margaret. Yeah, I think you might be right. It sounds more like something she would have said, but either way, thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> both amazing writers who are writing. They're both amazing writers. Yes. Amazing. Yeah, writers. they are. Yeah. Um, I will talk about their books one day on the podcast. They are like coming down the queue. I just like have so many books to get to, but yeah, Excellent. I've yeah, definitely, I know. definitely been looking at them. So. I actually, I've got a Barbara King solver book over on my bookshelf that was one of the first books that I bought for this podcast. And for some reason, I still haven't done it. So maybe that'll be uh, fl- Fight Behavior. Which one is it? 
Is it flight uh-huh. behavior? I was yeah. going to say that's the one I would suggest. I'm mm-hmm. also going to suggest another one if you haven't got yeah, it in yeah, your please. pile. Um, Bark Skins by Annie Proof. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just heard about this recently, but it sounds super interesting. It's amazing. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 600-year-long saga of Love it. The, basically the logging industry. Wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's uh, wonderfully done. Cool. Wonderfully done. Yeah, I'd love to check that out. Um, so kind of going off the, the problem, I mean, the question of are like, are humans the root problem? Another thing that comes up with this is overpopulation. And this is a really controversial one. I feel Ah, like ah, I knew you were going to ask. Yeah. 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 Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You knew I had to. No, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, and the book that I just mentioned Ishmael, that was like a pretty big theme in his book. And um, I'm forgetting now that the, um, the, the writer that he referenced in that book, but, um, you know, they, they were saying like the problem is the industrial, I mean, the, um, agricultural revolution, you know, like as soon as we learned how to grow food, um, without hunting it, suddenly population grew that creates like induced demand for more food, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, suddenly yeah. we've yeah. cultivated everything to turn it into just one big farm. Um, but yeah, this is, um, this is really controversial in the environmental space because um, I feel like a lot of people who, you know, are pushing for things like a Green New Deal and or just climate action in general, it, it to, I guess to them, it, it kind of feels like you were saying earlier, like indigenous people have lived in an ecological society, society for thousands of years and it wasn't a problem until, you know, we had uh, like industrialism. So, I mean... Do you think that overpopulation is an important thing that we should be talking about? Or I don't know. How do you navigate that? Yeah, that's it. How do you navigate? Because honestly, it's it sparks conflict. Yeah, it does. It polarizes, yeah, right? Yeah, and conservatives are always and, like at, the one child so, policy. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, they're going to, oh, they'll go nuts over yeah. that. I mean, at the root of it is <laughs> is reproduction and, and the right to reproduce right. it's kind of yeah. a, an impulse yeah, an yeah. innate impulse of all life yeah, right of course um to make more of itself so we're we're already in conflict with ourselves <laughs> uh but you know i i agree with project drawdown you mentioned that yeah about, yeah um, that's a good good one to draw attention uh, earlier to. you talked about that uh, how to enter into kind of a rational and productive discussion on the issue mm-hmm. kind of relies on you know, it relies on the players, their rationale, perspective, yeah, and personal feelings. So it's it's another one of those questions that's so hard to answer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know we we know there should be fewer of us, right? Yeah. we, we kind of all know yeah. this, right? Of course. How how to achieve it is is a whole other that's matter. That's the real question. Do you, yeah, do you, you know, do you use uh, Rob Ford's technique or Doug Ford, whatever his name is? <laughs> I don't, I don't like the man, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and beat, beat them down on the head saying thou shalt, you know, you mentioned mm. the, you know, China's policy. Yeah. yeah the one child policy. Um, but you know, it, it comes down to ecological footprints more than anything else mm. and living lightly on lightly on the earth mm-hmm. and, and other philosophical considerations. Um, and here's the thing though, you and I talked earlier about infertility, right? Yep. And the rise yeah. in, it's to me it seems a macabre kind of irony going on with environmental degradation mm-hmm. caused partly by it is caused partly by overpopulation right. sparking infertility in humans mm. so i mean is is that 
possibly nature taking care of itself. Yeah. And I'm just going to leave it with that. <laughs> I mean, maybe it'll all just cover itself, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, mm. yeah. Uh, uh, that, that's my combo. I guess yeah. uh, I, I just find that earlier on when I was very much a political member of the environmental movement, mm. um, that was at the forefront. And um, it, it took a backseat because mm. because of the, the the polarizing nature of it and the yeah. fact that it's very conflicting. So uh, I think, to be honest, if you look at one thing and you fix one thing, the other takes care of itself yeah. along with it. And I think overpopulation is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, there was um, a, it's, um, a page on the Project Drawdown website that I'd found. But um, yeah, I thought it was funny when I, I first started learning about Project Drawdown several years ago. Um, one of the first things that they recommend doing is um educating yeah women. educating women empowering young yeah. girls um yes and it's because and, of overpopulation know, the, basically yeah, yeah yeah and you would think what has that got to do with it, mm-hmm. it has everything to do with yeah. it everything to yeah, do with totally. it because it's it goes back to what margaret atwood was talking about mm-hmm. right if you change the the way we live what's important to us and how we move and everything mm-hmm. using traditional ecological knowledge uh, respecting the environment, mm-hmm. uh, understanding that the trees are our relatives. Yeah, you know, shifting our our paradigm, everything else comes with it. Right, it's it's just amazing how it it settles mm. itself. Yeah, it's almost like a, it's kind of just proof of like doing the right thing will make things better, sort of. Because um, I mean, yeah. we just should be investing yeah. in um, educating girls to begin with, like even if overpopulation wasn't sure. an issue. So it just seems kind of exactly. like, yeah, it's almost like the proof is in the yeah. pudding kind of thing. Um, yeah, definitely. I like that. Yeah. I like that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I like pudding. I really like pudding. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I won't argue <laughs> I like with that. Yeah. It's great. It's great. <laughs> um, so of course um, we're talking about climate change, but the change part of that is another big theme in your book. Um, which reminded me a lot of one of my favorite books, which is um, Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. Ah, uh, I love yeah, that Yeah, it's so great. But um, yeah, in that book, uh, the main character, Lauren, she actually creates her own religion called Earthseed. Yes. And yeah, yes. one of the, I guess, like the main tenet of Earthseed that she always repeats, there's this kind of little book of like, I guess, Proverbs almost that she writes um, that kind of lays the groundwork for it. But she always says, God is change. Um, yeah. and then you had a quote in your book from Lena that I thought, um, it reminded me of that a lot. Um, I've got it here. I was going to read it. Um, she said, trapped by our preordained notion of change, we no longer see what we're not prepared to see. And that's the change that kills us. So that got me thinking, you know, then about like biological evolution and you know, everything's changing so fast, like evolution can't really keep pace with it. Um, and then, you know, we get to this question of, like infertility, like you were saying, is that maybe nature taking yeah. care of the problem itself? Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't want to spoil the end of the book, but I think like, as you see close to the end of the book, there is a little bit, maybe more of, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something like this, but I was wondering uh-huh. like, um, if, if you think that there's a point where humans will, I guess, need to, or I, I think there's probably a point where they will try to take evolution into their own hands, so to speak, like, like transhumanism yeah. is kind of part of that, but yeah. Uh-huh. Transhumanism, CRISPR. Yeah. God, CRISPR you know, scares me to death. <laughs> oh, it scares me to 
scares me yeah, too. Oh, it's, so scary. Like, it's like it's like putting a bomb in a child's hand. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, you know what? First, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it isn't our intelligence. It's not our cleverness that's going to save yeah. us. It's it's our kindness mm-hmm. and compassion. And you, we don't need to invent some techie thing or reinvent ourselves mm-hmm. or Im- implant ourselves with some intelligent virus or something. Yeah. We we simply need to do what we simply need to do is accept ourselves with mm-hmm. humility, find and express joy, mm-hmm. give into the beauty of the world, uh, find beauty, and see our own part in it. Mm-hmm. Become a become a participant. Embrace the feminine, respect nature and all that lies in it. Mm -hmm. And I always say this, find something out there in nature to love, Mm. cherish it and protect it. Because that's what we do with something we love. Mm -hmm. And, and the rest will follow. That's great. I really love that. Uh, (laughs) Love that. But yeah, Um, I feel like I've been hearing more people talk about this kind of thing. So I, I hope that it is kind of like percolating up through the collective consciousness, but yeah, that book, all we can save, uh, that came out not too long ago. I feel like a lot of it was about this. And, um, one of my favorite writers, um, climate writers, Mariana East Heckler, she had an article that I feel like is one of her more underrated essays about how, um, love is what is going to save us from the climate crisis. And I feel like on the surface, yeah, people might kind of scoff, but I think there is something really deeply profound about that. You know, it's, it's always the simple things, Mm -hmm. the the simple things that are the most powerful. Yeah. It always comes down to that. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to end our conversation. That's such a great note to end on. Um, I really, really enjoyed your book, um, A Diary oh, in the Age of you. Water. So if you haven't read it yet, I'd recommend everybody who's listening right now to go pick up a copy and read it for yourself. Um, but yeah, Nina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Awesome. I really enjoyed oh. getting to talk to you. So did I, Forrest. It was a wonderful conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Stories for Earth is written and produced by me, Forrest Brown. The music you hear in this episode is also by me. If you want to support further production of the show, you can do so by becoming a member on Patreon or by donating what you think the show is worth through Venmo. Just search at Stories for Earth in the Venmo app. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.